got a special guest today. My guy TJ Tibbs. Uh, first knew about TJ through a mutual friend Harry through the Run the City podcast, and uh, it's a pretty informational, uh, informative podcast. A lot of great uh, basketball talkers on there. TJ's a great dude. He's a young basketball coach, head coach at uh, CSI. And uh, TJ, can you just give the listeners uh, more about who you are? Well, first, Sean, I appreciate you having me and, and all the kind words about myself and, and the podcast. But TJ Tibbs, the head men's basketball coach at the College of Staten Island Division II school in Staten Island, New York, which is in New York City. Um, we just recently went Division II, so we're now entering into our fourth year of being a Division II basketball program. Uh, been coaching college basketball. I'll be entering my ninth year coaching college basketball next year. Uh, spent some time at NJIT, uh, College of Mount St. Vincent, and Baruch. Um, been coaching basketball for 16 years, starting coaching AAU. Uh, live on Staten Island uh, with my wife and my dog, who's like my kid, and <laughs> just uh, love everything that has to do with, with basketball, sports in general, but Obviously, extremely basketball and what it does for for not just young men but people. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that one. Um, I've been in basketball close to five years, and it's been painted. <laughs> so, Which is one great. question. One question. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Um, how did you first get started in the basketball? Like, how did you first get? Uh, how did you first fall in love with the sport? put every type of sport around me since I was four or five. My dad was an athlete himself, you know, played baseball, basketball, even a little football. So from young, from five years old in the neighborhood I grew up in, you have to play football. Everybody in the neighborhood plays football. So played football at five, played basketball on the small rims from five, uh, played baseball, the, the baseball organization, what's your little league that I grew mm -hmm. up from. I could walk there from my house growing up. And it was really my dad. My dad coached me in every sport except for football, so he exposed me uh, to everything. He never said no. My parents never said no to, to any sport as long as my grades were good. Um, but, you know, I've been playing basketball since five years old. And and my dad, uh, I've always been a point guard. My dad helped develop my mentality to pass first, second, and third. I mean, I was – I always, always used to joke with people that when I played for my dad, I was the sixth option. Like, my dad was an option to shoot before me uh, on the sideline. <laughs> so, you know, my dad really, you know, developed my mentality of how to see the game, try to think ahead. Mm. And um, and then I, I was blessed enough to have a lot of great coaches, you know, you know, after my dad, and whether it be AAU or high school or college or even summer leagues. I've just been around a lot of great coaches. So I've been fortunate to – to pick their brains continuously, even now, some of them. And um, once I got into college, I was coaching high school basketball at the same time mm -hmm. uh, for a year. And it was it was too difficult, but I always knew I wanted to go back and, and figure out coaching. And, and now, eventually, here I am. That's beautiful. And so, uh, based upon that genesis of first getting started, I know you noticed that your dad really built your IQ and also your playing style of how to think ahead. Do you think that background um, has helped you become um, a great coach in the earlier part yeah. of your career? Yeah, for sure. Because uh, I think it's no mistake why a lot of point guards or a lot of coaches used to be point guards because, you know, especially, I mean, the game is a little bit different now, which is great mm -hmm. progression. But, you know, growing up, the point guard controlled 
literally everything. And they weren't really relied on to score as much as what you see now, especially in the professional levels. You know, yeah. guys who have the ball in their hand now are the, the most dangerous guys on the court. Uh, the game has just, you know, evolved, which is awesome. But, you know, my dad really taught me to think about others, how to help others score, in positions to score. And then that was my job. Uh, to know everything the coach knew, to know more because you are on the court. Um, and then when I got to play JV basketball for Coach Rich Buckeye, who's the current AD and, and head coach at Matter Day High School in New Jersey, which unfortunately is closing down this year, he really was the first guy to put the ball in my hand and to trust what I seen on the court. So um, he gave me, I wouldn't say freedom of reign, but he would allow me to come over and say, no, we shouldn't be doing this because I see this. And he just trusted me. So, and he was actually the first one to give me a coaching job in high school. So our relationship uh, as coach and player was way different. You usually used to your coaches telling you what to do, yeah. not really looking for opinions. But he took my opinions. He constantly communicated with me. He trusted my work ethic. And he exposed me to other things about getting better in the game of basketball. So between him and my dad and, uh, and my freshman coach, too, they exposed me to the type of controlled work ethic you need to be better. I was always a kid that was in the gym all the time, but I didn't necessarily know what I should be doing. I would just be there for hours just trying to figure it out. But, you know, as I got a little bit older, freshman, sophomore year in high school, those guys kind of said, you need a routine. This is what you need to be doing. This is how you should be doing it. And that's the basis of what I do now. If I walk in the gym and get a workout, I still do things I, I, I learned when I was 14 years old. So I'm just blessed to be around a great, a lot of great men and a lot of great basketball coaches. No, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So I just want to piggyback on that point you made about your coach giving you the free reign in JV. How important is that for, you know, young players to have that freedom or that trust from a coach in terms of the development as an athlete? It's highly important, especially in the high school level, because it's a huge jump. No matter who you are, could be the number one player in the country. Um, that's basically because mm -hmm. you're, you're really talented and you're really skilled. But the as we see the game now with so much switching and, and, and everything going on at the pro level, you, you have to have an IQ. There's only a few type of players that can get away with just being that skilled and that athletic. And those are usually generational superstars. But even those type of guys, you look at the one that's clear, like a LeBron James, uh, he's one of the smartest basketball players arguably ever. I and mean, you put that combination together, you get the greatness that you see in his career. But I think it's important. And like I said, I played JV. I played freshman, then JV, and then two years of varsity. Mm -hmm. You know, three on three is, is just extremely integral to, 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 to what we're doing and developing the, the last guy. And you hit on the mental and emotional aspect of playing and a lot of our guys are coming from situations where they were the man in high school and they were playing every minute. And now they get to college and they, they haven't gotten worse. They're just in a different environment. But now they're not playing. So it's the first time that they've never not played. And that does a lot to them mentally and emotionally. You start to second guess yourself. Um, I had a conversation with a kid the other day who just said, hey, I, I'm not sure if you know, I love the game as much as everybody else around me does. You know, I'm not sure. Wow. And, and it's really – and I don't really believe that. I just think he's in an environment that he's never been in before. And mm -hmm. the demands that are being asked of, of him, 
he's never had to. It's a kid who's really, really talented. We all tell him he's probably the most talented kid on the team. But when you get to this level, the work has to outweigh your talent. You just have to be in the gym. You have to do these things. You have to, you know, it has to be a big part of sacrifices you make. You can't go the whole entire summer and just beach it or hang out and not get your work in. Like, that's just, you know, you're a Division two basketball player. You, you have to put the work in. And, every you know, it affects everybody different. Everybody just thinks that everybody's happy when they're playing basketball. You're, oh, you're playing. What are you mad about or whatever? But these kids have a lot of things that they're bouncing. And on top of the fact that school is hard. But, but yeah, three-on-three three is very important. I think it's during the year. You should have some sort of mini competitions that yeah. that help keep everybody engaged and help keep things fresh, you know. And you get into January, it's snowing outside. There's no class. Everybody's on camp. Nobody's on campus except for our teams. And we we just we have a Wednesday Saturday game, and it's Thursday. What in the world that you think is gonna you're gonna do that is gonna make these kids be so engaged for practice? <clears throat> They've been away from their families for a long time. They haven't had interaction with anybody else besides themselves for five weeks. It's tough, you know. They practice, and then there's man, not much to do. Maybe there's a snowstorm outside, so they can't literally go anywhere. Um, why do you think that they're just going to be so ready to go? And you want them to be able to do that, and and some kids will. But the human emotion and of day-to-day life is going to kick in, and it's going to be tough for them. So got to find new ways to be fresh. You know, some days I walk in, and we've lost in, in, in my career. We've lost three games in a row one time. Mm-hmm. And I walked in with some dodgeballs, and we all we did was play dodgeball during practice, and it was fun. And I wish I could tell you a great story about how the next game we came out and we won by fifteen points, but we lost the next game too, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like so, it, but but we were in a different mental place heading into that game, um, when we were in a rut in the season, and I really think that season that playing dodgeball that day just loosen things up for us because mm. it's it's everything to us, but it is – it's. I hate when people say it's just a game because it's a little bit more than that. Yeah. It's done way more. It's not just the game. Um, it's not – It's monopoly. the game. Yeah, it's, it's the game. It, yeah, yeah. But it, it, it is – it's not a life or death situation is what I think yeah. people are trying to say. But it's not just a game. Um you know, that's something I have a huge issue with or whatever the case may be. But, yeah, just trying to keep things fresh, three-on-three. Outside of games. And the less you can get people standing around watching, I think the better a coach that you are. I like that. I like that. Um, I know you talked about, you know, towards your college career, um, everything had to be about, you know, habits, have routine and everything like that. Uh, yourself being a coach now, what are your daily routines to, like, you know, check all the boxes to make sure you had a productive day? Yeah, so I have rituals. I don't have routines. I think there's a difference. Um, I do have some routines, but I think routines are easily can be broken. Um, Mm. I think rituals are things that you you can't live without, you know, especially going to the gym. You once you get going in the gym and you're a month in, even though you're sore, you got other things to do. You start kicking yourself. So it's extremely important as part of a, a, a kid's development. Uh, you know, mentally and physically to have some believes in them as a coach mm-hmm. and also lets them explore their intellect on the court. Um, it was very important for myself. But and like I said, I played freshman 
JV, and varsity. So that was a huge part of my development with being on all three levels because each level gave me something different. And the program that I was in had a plan for me. They had a plan for my group of kids in the class, but they also had a plan for me and how I could get better. So it's very important that I was able to play for a coach that would listen with, with, with I hate the phrase, like give you confidence because you have to give yourself confidence. But when mm -hmm. you have the person who's controlling everything, uh, right. Like telling you that you're, you know, you're right about things is stepping away from their ego as an adult. Uh, it, it enables you to continue to grow. I mean, I watch basketball, watch basketball, more than anybody as a kid. And mm -hmm. I would come back with all these ideas and not try and tell people what to do, but trying to find ways to help our team. And and that enabled me to explore my game more. So, you know, there's, there's so many different things. Like, you know, Markel Fultz was the number one pick in the draft. He played JV and Joel Embiid played JV. And I think those things are really, really important because that's what they needed at that time. Um, so, so many people try to rush the development to get to the end goal, but Everybody needs something different at each spot. So, you know, I'd always try to encourage adults when they coach to let the reins go a little bit. And you never know how mm -hmm. far a kid can go unless we let them go. It's so much easier to rein them back in than it is to have them take the extra step. So it's way easier to say, whoa, than to say go. And that's something I still live by today. That's good. That's good. Do you feel like more kids should stop pouting and getting mad about being on JV when they first make a team and just embrace it? Because like you just said, uh, the developmental part of that is what allowed you to be a great player for varsity. It's what allowed you to make the mistakes at a level where the mistakes can be corrected, not to the point where correction is going to the bench. Correct. And I think you made a very, very big point about being able to have the freedom to make mistakes. It's one thing to make the same mistake twice because you don't understand or you're not good enough to execute the mistake that you're doing. But mm -hmm. it's another thing to the only way you can expand your growth is if you're able to try stuff in live action. And with the way youth practices are set up, you know, take like a, uh, I don't know, like a CYO or, you know, local youth league from yeah. third grade to eighth. They're probably practicing twice a week and they're practicing for an hour and a half each day. Mm -hmm. Now, how much individual work can you get in that time? I mean, not much, you know, depending on your average coach, not much. And then the other part of that is how much live action are you getting that is not team stuff? How much three on three mm -hmm. are you getting? Usually it's a lot of one coach, right? Maybe there's somebody else up and out, but one coach. So you have the team together. Uh, so you can't split the gym and put, three kids on one, uh, six kids on one side, six on the other, and play three on three and get them a lot yeah. of live action reps. So, no, it's important because a lot of kids, you know, how many people say, oh, I could have did this, but my coach held me back or, or this is that. And when I coach now, my number one thing I try to tell everybody, I want you to do whatever you believe you can do, but mm -hmm. you got to be able to do it at our level. Um, once you get to our level, there's, there's, there's not too many guys that get to just – play through a lot of mistakes there are some guys and those are usually all conference type guys maybe even older guys that you're going to live with their mistakes because they're very consistent that's why they're one of the best you know players in the in the conference but once you sure. get to college it's your lease gets shorter because the talent gets more vast and you know when you coach in high school most of the time in most high schools if you have 
the best player or certainly the best two players on the floor, you're probably going to win the game the majority of the time. I mean, there's mm-hmm. not much strategy sometimes that you can really do to affect the game when you, the talent is that much different, uh, you know, because the best players in high school, especially local high school, they have a very big impact on the game. No, definitely agree with you on that. So, so the next point. There's a lot of scouting. There's a lot of advanced knowledge. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more tendency. So when you're in high school, you got to work on your game to be able to grow with, with I don't want to say no tendencies, but try to shore up all your weaknesses as much as possible. And, and that comes from playing in an environment where you're playing. Forget how many minute, uh, points per game that you're averaging. How many minutes are you averaging? That is the most important thing. If you're playing 30 minutes out of a 32-minute basketball game, you're doing a lot of things right. I don't care if you average one point a game. There's a reason why you're out there and you're you're getting better in live action. So I think everybody has to evaluate the situations um, individually and not just, you know, go for the Instagram highlight of, oh, man, well, the video guy is at the varsity games, not at the JT games, <laughs> so I want to, you know. But unfortunately, that's yeah. a lot of what kids see. And, you know, I don't. I don't lament that things are changing. You know, when I was in high school, if people were at our games with video cameras posting that day, like, you know, I would probably grow up feeling different too. I'm not impervious to that because I didn't grow up with that. You know, you can't lament how much kids are on cell phones nowadays because they grow up with them since they're literally five years old. They got them in their face. So you just got to adjust. Like there's a lot of good things happening in the world that are changing. And as adults, we got to adjust to that and adjust our teaching style. Uh, totally agree. Totally agree. So, I just want to harp a little bit on your um college playing career and just talk about um the things you went through as a college player, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the lessons that brought you to who you are right now as a person. Yeah. So my journey was this is very different. I mean, I started at Monmouth University out of high school, and I was one of those kids who, competitive wise, well, I also knew I wanted to coach, so I felt. I want to be a Division One coach, so I got to go to a Division One school. Like, how am I going to coach Division One if guys didn't know that I played Division One basketball? You know, that was just me being naive. Yeah. Um, so I went to Monmouth. I walked on, and um, you know, I was there for a year. I actually redshirted, and I had a great time. I had great coaches who gave me an opportunity. I had great teammates. Uh, they were coming off our senior class had just. Uh, they the, while well, team had went to the NCAA tournament the year before I got there, they won the play. They won the playing game. They beat Hampton, and then they played Villanova when Villanova was number one in the country, down mm. in Philly, and they had it down to eight with like seven minutes to go. So it was a, it was a good game. So I'm walking into an environment where our seniors have been to the tournament twice already. Mm. Um, it's their senior year. Uh, all the seniors on our team are good and contributors for our team. I think we had five seniors at the time. And, you know, we're expected to be the unanimous number one team in our conference. And we had a good young class. My freshman class had uh, the rookie of the year in a conference uh, from St. Pat's in New Jersey. And we had a bunch of other guys on the team. Our two sophomore guards were really good. We had a very, very good team. Still today, probably the most talent that I've been around. Um Nice. But we didn't – we just couldn't click for whatever reason. We just couldn't – you know, we couldn't be consistent on the court, and we ended up not making the conference playoffs. Wow. Which is crazy. You know, eight teams make it out of, I believe it was 11. 
we were picked to be number one. I believe it was unanimous. And we finished ninth. You know, it came down to the last game of the season. And what that year taught me a lot was about complacency. And not that our guys mm. were complacent, but I know we carried ourselves, especially in the beginning of the year, with a good type of swagger, you know. Our guys knew how good we were. And they approached the games that, you know, we were prepared and disciplined. But, you know, for one reason or another here and there, you know, we just couldn't put it together consistently. We just struggled. And, uh, you know, that takes a toll on a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. You know, it takes yeah. a toll on the coaches who who this is their job and their livelihood. It takes a toll on the seniors because this is their last chance at it. And it takes a toll on even down to the freshmen and the managers. Um, it all gets passed down. So being able to redshirt and being a walk-on, you know, I was able to observe a lot uh, because I wasn't preparing to play in games. Um, mm. So I see what it took every day to, to get the team prepared. You know, when we would lose, we would come in and have hard practices. And, and I would tell all the guys on the, we were on the blue team, which was a scout team, um, that actually played with Dutch Gately, who was an assistant coach for the Charlotte Hornets this past year. Mm. And, you know, we would come in and say, guys, we got we to come out. We got to play hard. We got to do our job. We got to execute because we were trying to do our role and preparing our guys to win, you know, the next True. day, two days later. So th that taught me a lot about as a player, about even if you're like one of the last men on the team, that your, your role, every, it's yeah, your role was important. I took my role very seriously. I prepared for practice like it was the game because it was my game. So mm. um, I seen how the harder we practice and the more we could get out of the starters, the white team, you know, maybe the better they played the next day or the more prepared they would be for what they were going to see. Um, you know, then I left, I went to Wagner College for two years, uh, ran track for a little bit, didn't play basketball, and I was completely lost. Um, I was frustrated with, with basketball. I fell out of love with the game. I thought college was a big business, and it was really bothering me. Um, and it was tough. It was tough two years of Wagner being away from the sport. That's when I started coaching high school. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I seen how much the sport means to me. Um, in, in those two years. And then I made it a tough decision to leave Wagner and to go to the College of Staten Island for my last two years. And it was the best decision I could have made. You know, you grow up on Staten Island and you say, I don't want to go to CSI because it's the school that's down the block. And a lot of people just go there. You want to go away. You don't want to be home. Yeah. Um, you don't want to play Division three basketball because you think it's like a curse word. Because um, <laughs> yeah, you're not informed, true. right? You're not informed of anything different. And mm -hmm. it was the best decision that I could have made for, for my life, professionally and personally. Uh, I got to put down two years of basketball on paper. I met a lot of lifelong friends. Uh, my coach is a legend, Tony Patoza, a legend in, in college basketball, coached for over 20 years, and is, uh, you know, the, the basketball court at our school should be named after him. And mm -hmm. I grew a lot. You know, grew a lot from playing and being one of the better players. You know, I played with two really, really good players, whole future, whole team. And my role as a point guard there was the same it was when I touched the ball when I was five years old, was to try to make everybody better. And and as I got older, I developed the ability to score more. So that came a lot in handy when I was in college. So that's something that I wish my dad explain to me a little bit better is that you can score you know you have the ability to score so mm. you can do that but my dad was always 
you know, making sure that I was becoming an intelligent basketball player and not relying on some gifts I had just to score. So, well, you know, like I said, although I'm thankful for that, when I got into college, if I needed to score, I had the ability to score the basketball, which you need to be a complete player when you play at that level, especially the high division three level. We went to the sweet 16 and, and seeing that, that, you know, we made an NCAA tournament run and it was just like, for me, it was just like all the stuff you watch on TV um, besides, yeah. besides flying around the country. So, you know, I took that experience uh, from being a division one player, division, being a division three player. And it was, it enabled me to be able to have perspective when speaking to kids about their college decisions, because I went through it as well. And it also allows me to understand when kids are just like, I want to play D1, I want to play D1, I want to play D1. Even though they're not close to Division One player, I understand the allure and the competitiveness of trying to play at the highest level. So I think my college playing experience gave me a vast amount of perspective to be able to lead young men. Yeah, because you're relatable. Yeah, and I never want to not be relatable. You know, a lot of people say that I'm relatable because of my age. Um, nah, you know, you're young, you can relate to kids. It's, it is. It's experience, and it's also trying to put yourself at their level. Like, we always want people to raise to our level, and standards are not a bad mm. Kids are so – they're developing. You know, you got to meet them where they're at to bring them where you want them to go. And I think a lot of times as adults we forget that because, you know, we're making the same dumb mistakes that we're watching kids make, whether it be sports or just life. Like, it, it just For looks sure. different, you know? So – you know, sometimes we lose touch with who we were. And, you know, I wasn't the perfect kid. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't always yes, sir, no, sir, and, and, and whatever. So, <laughs> yeah. like, to expect kids not to have issues with you and what you're doing and it's crazy. And we're not right all the time. So I need, I need kids to hold me accountable, too. And I think that's what helps. You know, I want to be 70 years old. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a young black man right now, but I want to be 70 years old and be able to coach young white girls if I needed to, like like third graders, and be able to relate mm -hmm. to them. You know, something like oh, these two people have nothing in common on the surface, but it's my job to work hard to to have stuff in common so that they can learn in the best way possible. Yeah, I think that's really important for, I think, because coaches are really teachers. We're teachers and counselors and everything else besides with a coach. I think we lose sight on that. And the best way to teach is to always meet somebody at their level. And like mm -hmm. you said, bring them to the standard. What mm -hmm. we do is we keep the standard up here and we keep yelling and screaming like, hey, why are you not at the standard? Why are you not meeting their standard? It's like you're asking somebody to paddle in the ocean with, with no boat or no or no oar. Like that's mm -hmm. impossible. You have to give them some form of transportation to get them to the other side. So being relatable helps because now it starts to affect the uh, psychology of I can trust you. I can listen to you. I can work with you. And once they bring down that wall of like, I don't know, but like, okay, I do know, I do hear what you're saying. And I, and I trust you because, you know, you're, I can see myself in you. Now individual starts to work with you more. They start to work harder. They start to, in a sense, ask more questions about the game. And in a sense, through you as an individual, they fall deeper in love with the game because of the way how you're teaching them, guiding them and allowing them to grow, giving them that confidence to experience things and tell them it's all right, champ, like chill out, like, Keep going. Knowing that somebody has their backs every time they fall down, somebody's going to pick them up. That's the most important part about coaching, in my opinion, is is that fact is being relatable and, more importantly, meeting them at their level. Yeah, I think you hit on a lot of great things. And and the biggest thing you said is that we're teachers. 
And yeah, I don't sure. think enough of us look at it that way. There's nothing different from what, you know, Mrs. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so is doing in math or history class. There's nothing different. The the basketball, no. the basketball court is my classroom. That That's what it is. And we do have to teach and we have to find multiple ways to reach multiple kids. Everybody doesn't respond to the same things. Like I said, when I grew up, if a coach yelled and just told you to do this, you kind of, it's just an error where you just did it, you know, the, especially yeah. the household I grew up in. Like I wasn't going to be able to come home and tell my dad that my coach was yelling at me. So I didn't want to do anything because I was going to get it worse at home. Um, so it, it's not necessarily like that now. Uh, those type of, Parental environments are kind of throwback and few and far in between. So you got to realize if they're not getting that from home and they're not getting that from, you know, school every day, then what makes you think that they're just going to morph into a kid that's going to respond to that? Um, so having different ways, you know, having different ways that I think how you correct kids is very important. Individual kids. Some people do not like public corrections. They don't. Some kids, when they hear their name, you could just call their name and you can tell by the way they react. They think they're in trouble. Yeah. You know, I'm just like, Sean, they turn around like, what? What do I do? And it's just like, <laughs> you know, like, no, I'm just, I'm just trying to get your attention. But, you know, that's a form of trauma that, you know, yeah. like, you know, that may, they may be at home. Every time their name gets called, they're doing something wrong. So that's how they respond to their name. So, you know, there have been times I've coached. And I tell our staff, like, hey, look, I'm the only one who can correct this kid. Everybody else be their biggest fan. I don't care what they do. Do not change your body language. Let me correct them. They don't need to hear five different voices because it drives them crazy. And there have been times where I've told people, you can correct this kid as much as you want, but don't make the correction in front of everybody because they don't like being put on stage. And usually as coaches, you grow up, you're looking at it like, oh, this kid's soft. They can't take that. It's not even nah. that. It's just different it's kids different. have different ways, you know. Yeah. I could yell at – there's a kid I used to coach. I could yell at him and tell him how I feel about him as much as I want, but I had to do it privately. And he was very receptive to it. And he was understanding of what he did, and he wanted to get better. But the moment I corrected him, not even yelled, but corrected him in front of everybody, he felt really embarrassed, and I seen different behaviors from him. So it, it's um, it's kind of psychology, and that's why I really want to get my doctorates in psychology because I'm not a psychologist and <laughs> I'm not a I'm not an expert on human behavior, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I would I would like to take steps towards being closer to that. Um, through through education but you know we, we've been around people our whole entire life so if we take the time to listen to people mm -hmm. um like you know not just hear them but listen to them then we'll start to realize different behaviors and things that we see that are repetitive in those individuals but and then also when we get a new group and you get similar behaviors no i totally agree because um working in exercise science you learn a lot about the human body and performance and everything like that but uh I noticed like the emotional, you know, saying standpoint of who we are as human beings has a pretty huge uh, factor towards performance. So like, say you have, you know, a kid, say you got a kid on your team right now, you know, let's say you guys have weight training uh, tomorrow morning. Let's say his grandmother died. The next day of him trying to lift those weights, whatever is prescribed for the weights that day, he's not even going to be able to do it because his emotional state is so high. He's so stressed out. The body works like this. Stress is stress. So 
you lifting, like, you know, saying, um, let's just say like uh, anything that's like 70 to 80% of your max weight could be the same as that thing as like you trying to get over a death in your family. Like the body just knows stress and stress. Inflammation is inflammation. And so for me, when it comes to these athletes, what I try to do now is like, before we even warm up, I just ask, how's your day? What's going on? Like, I just try to see what's going on for that day. I got a list of things we got to do for the day, but the matter of how we execute it depends on your emotional state of uh, state today, nothing else. So if you're in a bad mood, I may take some off. If you're in a great mood, I might, I might add some things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's working with the ebb and flow of humans and not acting like we're robots and that psychology side is, is what's helping me now as a coach to really get the most out of these kids and these individuals is, all right, how are you feeling today? How's this week been? How's your month been? How's life going? What's going on? You want to, you know, just sit down, drink some water, talk before you warm up? Like, anything you want to do? Yeah, coach, well, you know, I'm going through this and that third. All right, cool. Like, how you handling it? How how your mental? How everything doing? You good? All right, cool. On a scale of one to ten, how you feeling? I'm feeling like, you know, like a like a six. All right, bet, bet, bet. Go warm up and like, you know, I modify today's workout. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's how I try to approach all my training sessions because like you just said, everybody responds differently, man. For for example, on another tangent, um, it's a parent that I, I train his child, his child plays AAU. And he was like, Man, my kid just isn't understanding how to play two, three zone. I said, Well, is your son auditory, visual, or kinesthetic? He was like, What you mean? I said, There's three fundamental learning styles that I, that I learned in school. And I realized that once you fit one of them categories, you have to just work with that category to get the most out of learning. And I said, Well, my nephew, he's a visual and kinesthetic learner. Everything I have to teach you for basketball has had to be on a whiteboard, and we go out there and do the drill or do the workout that same day. So I said, if I have to teach him two, three, I'll have to draw up two, three on a whiteboard and then go outside and get some cones and do shell drills with him on some shadow defense stuff. And then he gets it. So I said, try that out with your son. He tried it out. And his son knows how to play two, three defense. So it's like you have to really meet people at their level, go outside your comfort zone, learn how to be a teacher, um, understand a little bit of how the mind and body works a bit. But foremost, formal schooling will take you a lot farther, man, because in my opinion, like that psychology side, the emotional state of human beings, once you kind of tap into that information, you kind of know how to um, bring the most out of people and help them along their journey. I believe that's where we truly see success because now consistency increases, passion increases, discipline increases. Everybody asks why we fall off sometimes in life. It's just stress, stress and not having solutions to deal with it and, you know, not knowing how to handle hard times. And the people who do are the people who overcome it and, you know, get rewarded for overcoming it. Right. No, I think I want to hit on two points that you said with that. Cool. You made a lot of great points. Um, one is is trying to figure out their temperature, what I call taking their temperature when they walk in. Yeah. And, um, you know, a big rule in our program is when you walk into the gym for practice or workout, you have to go say hello to everybody have to mm. no matter what so no matter who's in the gym the first thing you do don't touch a basketball don't do nothing go say hello to everybody and i'm usually one of the last people in the gym for multiple reasons but by the time i get into the gym everybody's watching me walk in and say hello because the kids are taking my temperature as well you know am i coming mm. in am i bouncing around am i a little you know stern am i what's my body language like i think it's important and for me when I, you know, say what's up to everybody, 
uh, touch them up, dap them up, and ask them how their day's going, I get a little bit of that. Mm. And the first thing we usually do after we have pre-practice is stretching. So it's eight minutes, and everybody does stretching differently, right? I'm not talking about the actual of getting loose and stretching. I'm talking about what the rules are. Like my coach used to hate that we talked during stretch. But I tried mm. to explain to him, Coach, I haven't seen my teammates all day, and then I have class <laughs> after this. So I don't got time to sit in the locker room and talk to them. Like, I really just want to know what's up with them. Like, this is my time to catch up with them because we're not doing that during practice. So, For you sure. know, I think that's a very important part of practice. So, like, if you come down a stretch, everybody's talking to each other. Mm. Everybody. You know, I might just be having a running conversation with somebody, and I it's, it's, it's a big thing for me to feel where they're at. You know, the days where stretch is really quiet, I know we probably don't have it as a group. We, we, we don't. So I have to be aware of that to either bring it myself or to understand that it, it's, it's, it can't turn into me versus them because I came in with an idea of how practice should go and the kids are feeling totally different for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And then when I have experienced teams, I'll usually ask guys, you know, the day of, you know, day after a game or whatever the case may be, like, how are we feeling? You know, is it a red day? Is it a green day? Is it a yellow day? Like, how's everybody feeling? And I just trust that guys want to be good. So they're not just going to tell me, coach, it's a red day. We shouldn't be doing much because they're, they're lazy. They're going to give me mm-hmm. an honest opinion on what's going on. That comes over, you know, years of trust. I even ask my players, like, you know, we could practice tomorrow, but I think we could use a day off. You know, what do you think we should do? And I got to trust what if I ask them, I, I always want to be in the gym. But if they feel like they need a day off, they need a day off. The guys who don't will be in the gym doing something anyway. So um, you got to be able to give them some control over what they're doing. And then the aspect I like you said about uh, the learning, it's, it's very important how you learn. And to, and to that point, I think we're getting we're developing less and less visual learners by the day. Mm. I mean, uh, people. So I say it's visual, audio or learning by doing. Right. So um, I think. I'm, I'm sorry, we're getting less and less audio learners, a, a lot of less and less people who you can just tell them directions and they're able to decipher those directions and to be able to do that, especially in a sport where you have to do it almost simultaneously. I think sure. that's it's almost out the window. Um, most people, like I said, kids grow up with iPads in their hands from mm. three, four, five years old. Mm, everything that points. they're doing, yeah, everything that they're doing, they're looking at it. It's in front of their face. Um, so I try to, you know, do more video than drawing on the board. I never now draw up a brand new play in the huddle. It has to be something that we've seen before and we practiced before. And then I will draw on the board as a reminder. But we're doing something that we've at least walked through or they've seen on film. They've seen us do it, whatever the case may be, because that's how people learn. And that's not what coaching usually is. You know, five, ten years ago, I could go into a timeout, draw something brand new, and most of the guys would just be able to execute it. But that's becoming slimmer and slimmer um, as kids are developing. Uh, you have to show them um, what it is. And we try to, as a staff, mm-hmm. try to identify what we think or how we think each kid best learns. And then we ask the kid because they don't even know. Um, so yeah. when, we, when we go through that, it's a great exercise that we do. And it's even more fun when the staff hits on what the kid thinks he is, because now we both are on the same page about how we should be teaching the kid, you know, including himself. So 
Uh, those things, I think you hit on a lot of great points, but those are two of the biggest ones that, you know, I feel that, that I can relate with what I do or what we do in our program every day. No, for sure. Um, kind of want to talk to that point of drawing up plays because uh, the director of the postgrad I work with, he said the same exact thing, uh, I think, two years ago. He was like, man, it's hard to um, call out out-of-bounds plays uh, for these new generation of kids. I said, why? He said, if I draw something up and if it's not what we went over, everybody's looking at me lost. It's like the fundamental of knowing the angles of a pin down screen, the different options of if this doesn't work, this what's next. If that doesn't work, this is what's next. Like just fundamental stuff that you should know, which just isn't there. He said, it has to be concrete stuff we implemented in practice. And I'm just writing down a review of, okay, remember that play we worked on last week, Tuesday? Okay, then we're going to run it right here with five seconds left. Like that's really what it has come down to. Right. And so I want, I want to ask you this, because it comes back down to the grassroots. Do you believe it's too much skill development and not enough emphasis on game development? Because you see so many kids with the array of moves, ball handling, shot selection, like, you know, they're highly skilled for a very young age. They can do a lot of, you know what I'm saying, skillful things. But to your point, though, when it comes to the game, they're not in the right spots. They don't understand plays. They don't know what to do. But yet you're very skillful as a basketball player. Do you think it's an imbalance of teaching the game the right way as compared to developing guys to be a great player? Uh, yes. I don't want to say this too much because there's a lot of skill in the game now, which is how the, the game is evolving. Which for is sure. Awesome. For sure. It's a standard. But, but, yeah, balance, like you hit on it, I don't think – there is enough balance, but also because I think there's been a separation of trainers and coaches. I don't know how coaches can't see themselves as trainers and how trainers can't <laughs> yep. see themselves as, well, coaches. as coaches. So you, when you're training somebody, so I think a lot of the time is so many people have become good and it's a business. So that's what drives it, obviously. But yeah. so many people have become really good at teaching moves, teaching concepts, that have to do with the individual, but a lot of the time they're not even thinking about how it affects in a team atmosphere. Um, because I always say to people, and a lot of my friends are trainers, obviously Harry, Steve, mm -hmm. um, a couple of friends, shout out to Blueprint Basketball, um, Steve Santiago and Blue Chief Albrun. I talk to them daily. So I always say like, how can you effectively train somebody? if you've never seen them play in the situation in which you're training for. Now, of course, you can just help them develop their skills, which is still a, a very big part of their development process. But as they get to certain ages, their skills have to fit into what they're doing. If I'm teaching kids how to go one-on-one -on -one all the time, that's great. But now I go watch a game, and they're playing in a Princeton offense. It doesn't really make too much sense. You gotta go probably should. <laughs> right? You're probably so... If you and that's another thing I go into a tangent about how kids select schools, but that's it. So you're training a kid with all these one on one moves, which is awesome. You go to watch the game; they're running point point away, point over the. They're running all this Princeton action, which is all cutting and timing and handoffs and and all. The, you know, you, you barely get you're barely if ever getting, you know, maybe a late shot clock one on one type. So it's great that the kid will be able to do that and eventually in other situations they'll be able to do that but if mm -hmm. this is their high school and they run this on all three levels i mean you got to help the kid get really good at the actions he's going to see daily and that's 
where I think trainers, I'm not saying people don't do that because people obviously do do that, but I don't know how you can just take a kid from a certain age and just do the same things you did with the kid the hour before, just in the name of their skills being better. Because a lot of kids have all these skill, but don't know when and how to use it, which is tough, or don't know where the spots in their offense to get off. And then most skill workouts, I would say, are 90-10 offense to defense. Like, we just totally ignored the skill that it takes to play defense or, you know, to play team defense or to switch properly. I've never seen I've never seen a workout where somebody is teaching with so much switching going on in the game. How much are you teaching how to attack switches or to properly switch on defense or how to slip slip when they're switching or how to screen your own man that becomes the other kid's man when you're screening when they're switching? All these things that I think trainers can also be responsible for, but also to be fair to trainers, it's a business. So those are things that are probably not going to sell and put money into your pockets and food on the table. So it's a hard balance uh, to do when you're trying to get clients and you're trying to get to do the stuff where kids want to come back. So Very true. So it's tough, you know, I, if, if you're doing it and you're doing this boring stuff that I guess coaches are deemed to do, which are, uh, you know, boring team fundamentals, you know, kids are going to go to the people on Instagram who are showing the cool stuff that they're doing because they just think that's going to get them better because they've never seen it before. But the tenets of the game have not changed since Bob Cousy had on them extra small shorts. It just, it just, with all them plumbers, right? Yeah, with, those plumbers. with all them plumbers, man. I feel a certain type of way about that, too. But, yeah, oh, with all them. But everybody said we're all them with all them bus drivers and right? oh Lord have mercy. Right? Like the, the tenets of the game have not changed. Just the athleticism mm. and the skill. And it's gonna continue to change as the decades go on and it's gonna look different. But footwork is always gonna be the basis of things and IQ. I think those things are always gonna stand the test of time until the NBA truly, truly says we're not calling any travels anymore. Then we're gonna have to figure something out. Yeah, that one playing rugby, bro. <laughs> we playing rugby, you just holding the ball and running. <laughs> rugby or Quidditch. Yeah, something. But nah, I mean, I, I totally can agree. Um, I believe when I started to, um, because I shot out to my mentor, Coach Harper, all of 2018. And then uh, 2019 is when I decided to, like, you know, dive into skills development for the most part. And uh, one thing that I prided myself on was, like, I don't know nothing about them extra ball handling moves. All I know is how to attack, how to triple threat. I was taught how to get somewhere in one or two dribbles. And, you know, I was taught to have great footwork in the post. And that's just about it. So I'm going to just teach guys that and just train a lot of actions. If I can train you to understand how to attack a dribble handoff situation, if you come out the corner, the ball's coming to the wing. If you know how to see what's going on that action, if your man is behind you locking trail and the big is already behind the screen, you got you got you can at least take one dribble, get a shot off. If your man is in lock and trail and you were doing a dribble handoff and the big shows, you can go around the big, your man can pop out to the wing. If nobody if no if, if you have a wide open mid-range jump shot, you can take it. Or if you get help on that on the elbow, you can kick it out, you can kick it back out to the wing, et cetera, et cetera. Like I'm just trying to show you what can happen in this scenario based upon this action. And if you know how to work this action, I mean, you don't have to have a lot of moves, bro. I'm just showing you how to get the ball in the bucket. That's the most important thing of basketball. How right. To put the ball, 
how to right. put the ball in the bucket. Right. So, yeah, and how to develop a way to get easier shots off of, like you said, the actions. And I, I think the way that, you you know, you stack that and teach that, and I think it's important. We do a lot of three-on-three, three, a lot of three-on-three three in the program. I, I it's really, best. It's really, best yeah. for development. It, it is. Like, you always want to pass away. You know, oh, you have the ball. So, you're always super involved in the action. But, you know, even when, you know, using using a situation like a pin down, like you just mm-hmm. said. So, we will tell the defense, like, all right, we'll do two-on-two pin down or three-on-three pin down. The defense, we'll tell the offense and the defense, the defense is trailing every single time. It's trailing, and the big is going to extend and going to show. So, we will do that for two and a half or three minutes, both teams, so they get the same look over and over again. The same look over and over and over again. Then we'll go to the next look. We'll say that, you know, the guy is trying to shoot the gap every single time and the big is going to release or, you know, a step back, whatever, you know, the terminology is that you use yeah. and you're going to play off that. So, you know, the way we try to do it and, and, you know, I tinker with it weekly with the best way to stack into it is we try to give them the, we're telling you what's going to happen and you just got to execute it better than the other team is executing it, even though you both know what you're doing. Cause there's an aspect of that, that that's going to happen. Then, We'll get to it and we'll randomize the the stimulus, which is the defense usually. We'll randomize after every possession. We'll give a hand signal that only the defense sees. And then they're going to execute that. Because I think the the one issue I have when I see things getting taught are that there's not – it's either just random and they don't know how to attack them. True, They don't get enough work attacking one of the stimulus stimuli. Yeah. Um, to start, or they don't, there's no random to it. So there's no like, okay, I seen this now, I got to react to this in real life time, you know, because that's when people start getting flustered is when they're coming off something, they're expecting one thing and then they get something different. How mm. many people just freeze up or are just not as fluid as what they seen before? Um, so true. those things are important. And, and even at our level in college, like, you know, pick and rolls are going to get guarded only so many ways. And you know going to the game what teams are going to do. Okay, they're going to, they're going to hedge every single time. This is a team that we play that they're going to hedge. This is what they do. They do it really well. They know you know they're going to hedge. They're going to hedge every single time. So and you, you execute better. Right. You just have to do it better than they do it. But then a team like us that's kind of scout-driven, you know, we may have our base defense of what we're going to do on a pick and roll. But depending on who we're playing against, and then more importantly, depending on how the game is going, uh, we may switch it, you know, during the game. So mm-hmm. if a team is, you know, team is hedging, we're hitting the throwback and the big is hitting a jump shot every single time. I expect over time that team is going to switch the way that they, they play their pick and roll coverage. Now what? Now they start jamming the pick and roll so the, so the big can't pop. Now what's the, what are we going to do? How are we going to figure that out? We can't just stop playing basketball now because it's happening. <laughs> one thing. So, but I think that's yeah. a part of um, – I wish there was more three-on-three leagues um, or three-on-three competitions within, you know, your uh, within your teams. I think yeah. that makes things more fun during the year, especially for guys that aren't playing as much. You know, you have competition days for an hour. We are, mm-hmm. all right, we're just going to do three on three for an hour and we're just going to do this pick and roll. Here are the teams. And, you know, at different points of the month or the year, 
whoever has the most wins accumulated, like they they get something. You know, I think there's so many different ways to develop that. But Yo, I'm gonna really not to cut you off, but um, yeah, got it. Yeah, I'm gonna really take that for this post grad season, man. Because uh, for like our two a day sessions, when we have like you know morning practice and then like you know afternoon individuals, I'm gonna definitely uh knock out some days and have the competitive sessions. That sounds great. I like that idea. In general, mm-hmm. with with it, first of all, young kids aren't very trusting of adults for a lot of reasons. I think today a lot of adults haven't worked to learn. Uh, or earn that trust from the kids. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, back in the day where, or back in my day, I guess, where uh, you just did stuff because the authority figure told you to. You know, these kids have so much information at their fingertips. Um, if you tell them that, you know, LeBron James won the MVP 10 times, when I was younger, you probably believed that. You know, somebody <laughs> told you that. But yeah. kid could find that out, that that's not true within five seconds of just Googles. So mm-hmm. I think it's great because young kids, you know, they have all this information. They can hold adults accountable um, for non-factual information, um, especially credentials. But I think on the adult end or on coaches' ends, you know, we, we have to understand that we don't have to control everything. Um, especially in game situations that younger kids, the games don't matter. Like they literally don't matter. You can, I've heard arguments where, oh, we're trying to teach them how to win and all that. You can do all those things in practice. Everything that you can argue why a fifth grade AAU game really matters. I can argue exactly why (laughs) that's the reason it doesn't matter. Yeah, very Um, true. So it's good for fun. It's good for diversity and like training because you're seeing different people and different kids and different environments and they're exposing different things. So that's great because you can bring what you learn from the game or what was exposed from the game and you can go over that and practice. But, you know, practice is the most important thing. So in the game, who cares if the kids out there making tons of mistakes because they're trying to do things that are gonna advance their game, you should just let them go. Um, or if kids are trying to explore their curiosity with the game and kids are working hard, you know, let them, let them grow into that. We don't need to call play every single time down. We don't need to chastise the kid for every single play. Uh, nobody's life is on the line because they win and lose games. And, you know, right now I'm involved in the development of a brand new, I hate to say AAU because AAU is non-existent. It's travel and, you know, yeah, you know, I even call it a spring summer basketball program because we don't I don't even believe we have fifth graders, sixth graders. I don't even believe in traveling. Like, why are we going four hours away and staying in a hotel? We can get that same smoke 45 minutes away <laughs> and everybody can go. We can play a lot of games and you can come back home and the kids can still hang out with their friends or the parents can still have their social lives. Like, you don't need mm-hmm. to sacrifice your entire – because once – that's the thing with parents. Once they start sacrificing too much, then they now start – Now it's like, uh, yeah. I expect something out of it. Yes. Sure. Yeah, because they just – and, and I'm not saying it wrong, but it's like, yo, I gave up this whole weekend mm-hmm. of me doing personal things because I sacrificed for my kid. But 
I'm not going to keep coming out here or keep doing this if, hey, well, my kid's not playing or not playing enough or we're not winning. So then the yeah, things that don't – Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the things that – now, you'll still get that if you go 20 minutes away because mm-hmm. parents in general just, you know, I – they, it's 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 hard for them to understand if there's not multiple people preaching the same message and messages that I'm preaching within our tribal basketball program are things that nobody else is saying. Like I literally told the parents in the program in the beginning of the year, I want every team to lose every single game. That's how I'm scheduling. I want them to lose every game because there's a lot of learning that comes from that. And as parents, if you have a ninth grader and we're losing and their attitude stinks or they, you know, don't want to play or they don't want to rise to the occasion and keep being challenged, you're going to save yourself a lot of money and time with that kid because you shouldn't be investing all this money in a trainer and all this. Like the skills can get as good as you want to, but if the kid don't got it or is not coming home and is not borderline obsessing about, you know, details, then they don't really want to be good. So that can show you quickly, you know, you spend all this money on this, on camps, because you think your kid is going to be this, and your kid doesn't want to be that. So that's the biggest thing for me. You know, a lot of parents put their kids in training three times a week, fifth grade, fourth grade, like let the kid figure it out first. And, and, and then, you know, sending the kid to a trainer is great, but the kid's got to want to go because in the end, no trainer can save no kid. Can't. Yeah. Kids got to, you know, you, you may see as a trainer, you may see a kid four sessions an hour a day. Okay, four hours a week. And that's a lot on the training end. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. That's still four hours a week. What's that kid doing the rest of the week? It's on the kid. So the training is enhancement, especially at that age. It's enhancement. You can't do it for you. So mm-hmm. your kids got to have some self-motivation, some self-discipline, like all those things. There's a lot of things that are taught at home um, and and are followed up by, by the people that you put around them. But, yeah, so just to wrap up this, you know, to, to surmise my point, yeah. like coaches got to let kids explore and got to give things up. Now, if you're in a high school level and you're playing, you know, those games matter. You're trying to win. Yeah. So that's a little different. But – not the freshman level, <laughs> you play freshman basketball, you would love to teach them during the games, like winning and, you, you know, different things you're going to do to win the game for sure. But, you know, you're ninth man on a freshman. I've seen it so many times. That's the beauty about being around basketball for so long. Your ninth man or your freshman team may end up being your best player. I've seen that situation. The ninth man on a freshman basketball team or the 10th man ends up being the best kid in your class because, whether they grow or they just, you know, work really, really hard. And in the specific situation I'm talking about, kid worked hard, grew a little bit, not a lot, but grew a little bit and just loved ball and was surrounded by other kids in his friend group that loved ball and and went to the right AAU program for him. And just, just incredible. So you got to give these kids a chance to grow. They're not done even when they're sophomores on JV. So... Um, or even juniors on JV in some states because you can do that. Like, you just let the kids continue to grow. Yeah, very true. So, just want to um, 
just want to talk about that point a bit more, just to like highlight that point about uh, the knife man in his uh, on the ninth grade team being the best player. Can you just like expand upon that uh, point a bit more and like what that kid did in a sense on his own to get himself to that level of being the best player on that team later? Yeah, on? I used a specific example because I've known the kid since he was in fifth grade. So, and mm-hmm. in, in fifth grade, he was cut from the top. Quote, I'm, I'm quoting, you can't see me, but air quote, the top CYO grammar school uh, team in his program. Gotcha. It was, he was cut in fifth grade. Um, in sixth grade, he made the team. Now, in fifth grade, he was a very big kid. He was a large kid. He was probably a little overweight for his um for his age and didn't move that well, was a was a five man, you know, was wasn't that good at basketball yet. Sixth grade, he lost a little bit of weight, started growing into his body, and he was coached sixth, seventh, and eighth grade by a pretty good grammar school coach. Um, I'm being a little humble because it was my father. So <laughs> he, he um, was coached by a pretty good coach and played with at least, if I can remember, two other kids that ended up being good high school players. So he was surrounded by kids who were also good as well and his team was good his team won championships all that when he got to ninth grade he went to the in my opinion which is the high school i went to the best high school on staten island and now there's a whole collection of talent on this freshman team mm-hmm. now even still i still thought at the time he should have definitely played but it wasn't a no-brainer he wasn't that good so he barely played so i say ninth tenth man because he barely if ever played um, as a ninth grader. So he came from being one of the better kids on his grammar school team to being very, you know, uh, somebody on the bench, somebody who barely got in. And his friend group of kids in different schools, which was ended up being a lot of kids on his AU team, which I ended up coaching, was the first AU team I ever coached. His friend group played basketball every single day in the summer, every day. They either be in front of his house playing one-on-one um, all day, going up to the local park in our neighborhood and playing two-on-two or three-on-three, or just going to the park and just putting up shots. Every day, when I say every day, every day they were playing basketball. There's about seven of them, maybe six, but they played basketball every single day. So his love for the game, and I think that was the summer um, of the Redeem team. So we were waking up because I'm really close with these group of kids. We were waking up four or five o'clock in the morning because they were in Beijing and watching the Olympics live. Um, because we And then just going to run on the beach or going to the YMCA. Like we just yeah, love ball. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- this kid's love for the game stretched his talent as far as it could go that summer, just because he just wanted to be around basketball by all, and he, and he wanted to put in the work. Meanwhile, and I can't speak for the other kids on his team that were in front of him as a freshman, they were, you know, better, maybe taller, maybe quicker, you know, more skilled at that age, but they certainly didn't put in the work that he put in over the summer, not even close. So when sophomore year comes around for him, and uh, he's in better shape. He's definitely a better basketball player. He's been competing against better basketball players all summer. He turned in from being barely playing, ninth, tenth man, to being the best player on his JV team that won a championship. Hmm. 
So that quickly, now usually doesn't happen that quick, right? With same group of kids. It's the same group of kids that he just finished basketball with in March. Now in November, he's the best player that quickly. Because now I would say, wow, you know, if I told that story, people would probably say, well, he grew, right? Or he grew or some kids on the freshman with the varsity. No, it was the same team. Mm. He just literally outworked everybody, uh, gave himself a jump shot, and his confidence was just through the roof. That's a key factor. Oh, yeah. Like, he, he I always thought he was a solid basketball player, but mm. once he knew he was good, no stepping his confidence. Yes, exactly. So that's when he had the confidence to do all these different things. And then he went on to be in a varsity starter as a junior mm-hmm. on a very, very good team, kids with Division One players, a uh, team, uh, team with Division One players, and the best player on his team as a senior and was a college basketball player. So that's a kid, like, and I try to, to you know, try to tell parents, I've been doing this for 16 years. Um, that group of kids was the first group I ever coached when I was 18 years old. So I've been doing this for a long time. Kid parents get so caught up on who's good right now in the fifth grade, in the sixth grade, in the ninth grade. Who's there's good? so much life ahead of them. There's so much. And there's so many reasons why different kids are good right now. When you're in fifth grade, sixth grade, the best kids are usually one of three things. They're bigger than everybody. They're faster than everybody. Mm-hmm. Or they're just more skilled than everybody. That's it. You only need one. Of, and God forbid you have two of those three things or three of those three things, then you're just excellent at that age because so many kids are just developing into who they are. and Or just starting. Correct. Like, literally just starting. Like, yeah, they all may play CYO, which is – I keep saying CYO. That's how grammar school league. I don't know if that's universal. But they may be playing grammar school basketball like like the best kids, but they're not getting exposed to the same things that the best kids are doing. The best programs around here on Staten Island have been the best programs since I was a kid. The same programs. So, clearly, the programs are either doing something right or – the neighborhoods which they're formed in just have the talent for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't make a kid special. I say to parents all the time, yeah, your kid may be the best fifth grader. Will he be the best eighth grader? Will he be the best 12th grader? Because I rarely see the best eighth grader on Staten Island, whoever that ends up being, become the best 12th grader. I can count two clear occasions in my mind, I'm not going to name them, but I'm, I, it's it's just so much that has to be developed between 8th grade and 12th grade. And honestly, mm-hmm. if you ask me, I'd much rather nobody know who I am from 5th to ninth grade and in 12th grade, everybody know who I am. I, I'd yeah, rather win. pressure. Yeah, I'd rather, I'd rather, yeah, and I'd rather win that race. I'd rather be the, the better one heading into college. And even still going into college, there's still a lot of development that needs to be done depending on what you want. But, you know, a lot of kids say that they, a lot of kids and parents say that they want the kid to play college, but it's a whole different type of animal. So I, I, I don't believe that. So my goal is to try to make kids high school basketball players. That's what we're trying to do, trying to make them high school basketball players. Because then from then, they're going to decide based on their work ethic and what they do with their programs if they become college basketball players. It's not for everybody. You know, everybody, if you play high school basketball, you can find a college basketball team to play on. I truly believe that. You would have to sacrifice a lot, though. Like, if you live in Michigan, 
you may have to go to New York to find that one school that will take you. You know, maybe mm -hmm. you don't want to go that far. You may have to sacrifice your major. You may have to pay more money than you want to pay. You may have to go to a public school. You want to go to private, whatever the case may be. But if you're a high school basketball player and you're pretty decent, you can find a college to play at. There's just too many colleges. Um, but it's a matter of if you really want to play that bad um, to be able to, to execute that. So it's a it's a marathon. That's a cliche, but it's, it's so true. Cool. It's very true. The kids who um you rarely get away with, you know, at some point just having talent exposes you. The 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 issue is that for some people, your talent exposes you. Sometimes it happens in high school, sometimes it happens in college, and for some really special people, it happens in the NBA. There are people in the NBA with no work ethic, but their talent has brought them to that level, and then they get exposed there. Um, so it looks different. Like, well, at least he's in the NBA. Yeah, he's that talented. But you cannot last. Or maybe they're a good player in the NBA, but they're not an NBA superstar like they're supposed to be with their talent because they don't work that hard or don't have that much attention to detail. So your talent's only going to take you so far. Um, very important that, especially if you coach freshmen and under, JV and under, that you're developing the kids on the bench because I've seen it. The ninth man, tenth man on your team, on on all our travel teams that I'm involved in, could end up being the best player. And this is not some crazy, and this is without them growing a lot. Because if somebody gets like a crazy growth spurt, now that's that's different as well. Yeah. Um, but I'm just talking about a regular a kid who's six six one, six two, um, you know, solid athleticism, no supreme God givens, just an incredible work ethic and an insatiable hunger to learn everything about basketball and to just want to be around the game at all times. I've seen what it's, it, it's done. No, that's beautiful. I mean, I asked that point because that's what got me so far in coaching. And I say that because it is. It's a book I read uh, by um, – it's a book called Atomic Habits uh, by James Clear. And one portion of the book he talked about, it was this guy, he was a chess teacher and he had three daughters and he decided to teach all his daughters how to play chess. But he didn't do it in a disciplinarian fashion. It was more of a, I'll create this environment where all my daughters want to do is play chess obsessively, but it's a natural love for it. Those three daughters all became like chess masters and went on became like, you know, some of the best chess masters ever played a game. So, once you create an environment for yourself to just love the game of basketball, just to love itself, to be around it, and to always ask questions, be curious, and to work at it, and to see work as just having fun and not something that's demeaning or like it's it's a burden. It's just like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do, but it's cool to do it. Mm -hmm. the, the amount of reps, the, the intensity of work, um, once that compounds, it's – you would think it's overnight success, but it's just like, check the timesheet. If you were all at a job, check the timesheet. You're doing 20 hours a week. This kid's doing like 80 hours a week, 40 hours in overtime. How can you stop that? I agree. What's that book? Because that's going to be that's gonna be one of the next books I read. Atomic Habits by James Clear. It's a great book. Atomic Habits, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a great book to um uh, breaking down like how the brain works and how habits are formed and, you know, in a sense, how different people that he's come across in his research have uh, built their own habits, like 
quick tangent. So he would ask um, a lot of people from uh, ballet dancers to um, athletes and stuff like that. It was like, you know, how do you uh, create a routine? You know what I'm saying? How do you, how do you, how do you uh, stay consistent with it? They said, well, um, the routine doesn't start until I start walk with the first task. And so he asked a ballet dancer. She was in New York. And she was like, well, my routine starts when I get inside a taxi. If I don't get inside that taxi, I can't go to the gym. Mm-hmm. So he said, you have to pick the most, you have to t- pick the simplest task to start your day. And that's how the routine starts. The routine doesn't start when you get inside the gym. The routine starts when you turn on the car, mm-hmm. when you brush your teeth, when you wake up. You know, he said, once we start thinking from that perspective of how to get our day started, it makes things a lot much easier versus thinking, I got to do this, I got to do that. Nah, I just got to get inside the car. Right, right. And play. I just got to go to the gym. That's it. I just got to make sure I wake up at the right time. That's it. You know, we, we focus so much on the result, but the roots or the foundation is what yields the result. So, right. the founda- so the foundation is getting inside that car, making sure you're waking up on time and getting to the gym and then executing whatever is in your routine or your ritual. So it's a, it's a, it's a great book, man. I always refer to whenever um, I'm, um, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, build a solid schedule and like, like, all right, cool. Like, what are the tasks to do for this week? Okay, well, I got to study at this time. I got to watch film at this time. And every time I put time starts when I have to do something, I just put the first task. All right, open a laptop, drive to the yeah. gym, make my coffee. Those tasks first, and then everything else just handles itself. Nah, that's great. I'm definitely but definitely putting that on my book list, for sure. For sure, so, for sure man. It. Oh, yeah, no problem, no problem, no problem. Um, I think uh, I'll end it off with one more point before we conclude because uh, I know with this segment, it's going on 30 minutes. So um, I think the last one I want to talk about, since you brought up having uh, 16 years in coaching, that's beautiful. That's really beautiful, man. Shout out to you for that because, uh, you know, um, to do it, especially knowing your story now, talking to you briefly over the weekend, um, you got a hell of a story. And I'm just saying it off the cuff because that's really inspirational to know that, you know, You've taken all of your playing background and pulled into these kids. And not only that, but you're still finding ways to push yourself as a coach. Like you talked about going back to school and getting into psychology. So you can still improve the growth of these athletes. And I believe this is the type of culture that needs to be set for coaches. I'm not saying it's not a lot out there, but I'm saying more of it is needed. Because when we have a nucleus like that, that cares so much about the youth and the way how things are supposed to be done. We can stop talking about how basketball is like this and like that. We can just start focusing on why it is this great because of the people who are, who are behind the scenes getting things done. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So just uh, briefly talk about, like, you know, certain things um, that you uh, did to keep yourself motivated, keep yourself going. How do you push yourself? So any young coach who just wants to be a great coach can uh, just take certain gems you drop and add it to their life. Yeah, well, I think – I wouldn't be anywhere along the journey without my support system. And mm-hmm. the support system has to understand what you need and not just tell you what you want to hear. So I can go on and on about my parents, my, my, my friends, my wife, how at each step of the journey, would it sound crazy? I mean, I was working at NJIT for no money, 50, 60 hour weeks for, for no money. Um, just, you know, started dating my wife and 
it was hard. It was very hard financially. It was, it was very hard mentally, physically. But I basically got a PhD equivalent in basketball from the year I spent working for Coach Jim Engels and working with Brian Kennedy, who's the current head coach at NJIT, like working with Jesse Eagle, who was a former head coach in the Ivy League. There was so much information just being casually tossed around on a day-to-day -day basis that I understood the sacrifice. And it was my job to make sure that my support system understood the sacrifice. So there were days that were really hard. There was, you know, overall, it was a really difficult experience, but it was a means to an end to, to hopefully get to places that I've been to and, and where I'm at now. Because you don't really have too much control over where you're going because a lot of it is being just ready for when the time comes up you don't know what's going to come up that you can be up for mm. in this you have no idea you know it's not like saying i want to be a firefighter and i gotta take the test get on the list you know get the amount of credits i need and get this certificate and all this and then when the time comes they pull your name off a list it's, it doesn't work that way you know, you may love everything that you're doing where you're doing it, and then a job opens that can help elevate you. And it's just, it's, it's time to go for that or it's time to go. Mm -hmm. um, so I think my support system has been incredible. Um, they're truth tellers. I demand that they're truth tellers uh, they call me out for my BS consistently. And each person in my support circle in, in my circle, you know, gives me something a little bit different because they are different, they're unique. And I think, you know, and in return, you know, a lot of my friends are younger than me and they coach in college and I went through a lot of things first. So I think it's important that not only am I setting an example, but I'm passing all that information down of mistakes that I've made or things you should or shouldn't do, things I didn't know. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really important. Like everywhere I go, I try to put the ladder down. You know, even now, right now, I'm the interim director of athletics and going to return to coaching basketball. But you know, I try to have conversations with everybody that I work with. Where how can I help you to get where you want to get? You know, everybody's not necessarily as open and receptive as, you know, I would probably like for them to be. But that's their own decision. You know, I'm not Nostradamus. I don't have all the answers. So everybody has their own journey. But uh, and, and motivation, when, when I first started coaching in college, I would write myself notes every now and again on my iPhone. And this is 2014. So notes about things I learned in practice or notes about how I was feeling or how something somebody did made somebody feel and I didn't want to do that or, you know, whatever the case may be. I would just write and write and write. Um, just journaling. Yep. And I still have those notes. I, I still do. So I, I will go back and when I need a reminder of how far I've come, I guess, in theory, because sometimes you get caught up so much in what you're doing and being confident in yourself, feeling that you're supposed to be doing these things because mm -hmm. you deserve it, that you forget that <laughs> you were begging to have any sniff of an opportunity um, <laughs> not too far ago, you know? So like, yeah, you know, a bit. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. Humble thyself. Like I, you know, I work really hard, but you work really hard. The next person works really hard. I mean, working hard is just, no exception. Yeah. Working hard is just a prerequisite to, to have a chance of getting where you want to get, but that's not why 
you're going to get a job over me or I'm going to get a job over you it has nothing to do with working hard. We're both going to be in contention because we work hard. You have to. Nobody in that in that realm is not working hard. So it doesn't matter that you work hard. Working smart is more important. Connecting is more important. Uh, connecting is very important. That's something that I need to, you know, grow at a lot. You know, I just, you know, I feel like there's a thin line between connecting and ass kissing. And I'm not an ass kisser. And I'd rather, I guess, in spite of my own self, I'd rather not even come close to being an ass kisser and lose a connection. Um, mm. That's just that's just me. Um, you know, I'd rather get things, you know, not necessarily on my own merit because everybody helps you get somewhere. But like, yeah, for sure. I'm not begging somebody just for I'm not doing that. That's just that's just me. Um, but, you know, every now and again, I'll read my journals. Um uh, you know, speaking of my parents, my wife, you know, my wife is a constant in my life in, in general. She's seen me go through the beginning of my coaching journey. I used to coach her brother. That's how we met. Um, yeah, yeah. So I used to coach her brother. I was really young coaching. So I coached her brother. Uh, we met through that way. So she under, she understands. She, she went through my life when I was a senior in college and signed a contract to go overseas and decided not to go and tried out for the then D league and all this stuff. And then started my coaching career and not seeing each other because working all the time, like, you know, she, she is fully on board with everything that I do. Like That's she is, man. yeah, she's my number one supporter. She's at every game. She, understands i come home after a game we lost that it's probably gonna take me two hours to get home from a home game and then when i come home i'm probably going to be sitting somewhere in the house with the computer watching the game over and and all this stuff like you know that's there's a lot of uh you know my wife will leave food out for me little things that you know are just supportive it doesn't always have to be words it could be you know gestures or sometimes it's no words sometimes i come home and speak in a mild minute and there's nothing to say back to me it's just i need it i need an ear i need somebody to listen to and, and not feel like you don't know what i'm talking about you know my wife knows everything my wife talk comes when i come home she's talking to me about the game you know why'd you do this why are you not doing this <laughs> and, and stuff so um you know so i think trying to give yourself perspective you know anybody who's listening to this you know maybe you never journaled so you can't go back seven years from now but you know trying to you know do some self-meditation i'm not saying do it daily it's really meditating is really hard it, it, it is um yeah. but if you can put yourself back in a position where you were a couple years ago maybe even a couple months ago just to humble yourself mentally and to appreciate yourself you know i just said my wife is my biggest fan and supporter but like you know right up there is myself you know I, i'm my own biggest fan um i won't wait for somebody to tell me good job like i gotta tell myself good job like self-talk is so important um you know talk to yourself don't listen to yourself you know it's a major thing for me and i don't care if people think you know, I'm not doing it in an outward way for people to really know, but I don't care if people think I carry myself with so much confidence that they think that I'm arrogant or cocky. I know I'm not. Um, yeah, I know I'm not. But um, when you put the work in and you're confident in what you do, um, 
you know, so it's, it, it doesn't make sense to talk to yourself in a way that is going to demean yourself. You know, we put ourselves down quicker than anybody can. Um, you know, you suck. Why you do that? You're this, you're late. Like, you know, why? I don't want to talk to myself like that. I don't like that. So, you know, I try to tell myself all loving things throughout the day. You know, I really do love myself. Um, as crazy as that sounds, but you know, the, the number one enemy that we can have against is nobody that's outside of ourselves. It's, it's, it's truly us. And that's what, what we're feeding ourselves literally with food or what we're feeding ourselves with thoughts, you know, thoughts are more powerful than going out and eating soda, um, burgers and all, you know, stuff that you shouldn't be putting in your body on a regular basis. You know, the words are way more poison than eating bad food. Um, no, it's very true. It's just the algorithm of the bond, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally agree. So, you know, I just, you know, just, I always have goals. No, I, there's always things I'm working towards both short term and long term. And, and the biggest motivation for myself is, is uplifting other people, whether it be younger coaches that are trying to get in and just trying to do my best to be a resource and be available. Sometimes, honestly, I feel like I'm too available, mm -hmm. but I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, so you know, being a resource, you know, seeing advice that I gave somebody helping them, you know, that brings me joy. Um, because like you said, this, you know, the coaching realm is, is it, it needs to improve and we just need more great people in there, even if they don't have the, the skills yet to do what they need to do. So it's a job of people like us that are in positions like I am to help them develop those skills. But if they have the passion for mm. it, especially for kids, then we need those people, you know, we have too many people that have a passion for the dollar or a passion for, you know, um, their, who they could be. Um, mm, so you're saying the legacy and, yep, and the, 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 the power that comes with, mm -hmm. yeah, like those things. And, you know, everybody, you know, everybody thinks about that, you know, money is important. It is for sure. Um, for sure. You know, and, um, being in a position where you can do things is definitely important. But if you're not in this for the kids, first and foremost, then you're going to live a very empty life when it comes to this. You may be rich in money and power, but, you know, it's going to be very hard because the game is changing every, you know, not the literal game of basketball, but the game as far as kids and development is changing every four or five years. So, yeah, yeah. So just guys stay true to who you are. Um, read a lot. Um, I don't read a lot of books, but I read a ton of articles daily and I always nice. take suggestions. Yeah. So read a lot and just connect with as many people as possible that are ahead of you, because you'll see when they break down their barrier that they're a lot more like you than they appear what to you be. Think it is. Mm -hmm. yeah. You're a lot closer than you think you are. You're, you're one step away from one breakaway, whether you deserve it or you don't deserve it. You just better be prepared for it when that time comes. Oh yeah, definitely hear you. And so your point about, you know, the money. And like, you know, the legacy, like I try to tell people when it comes to this, um, you're better off making more money in fitness and like sports training and as a basketball coach, because mm -hmm. you're just a, you're just a tool. Mm -hmm. I coached a parent's child yesterday before I went to go coach. Um, and I was like, I'm, I'm just your child's tutor. I'm not going to be responsible for your child becoming like one of the best players on her team. Like that's up to her. That's up to the coach. 
Um, all I can do is just break the game down for certain parts that she struggles with and enhance that. I'm just here to enhance her weaknesses, but her strengths is up to her, up to you to increase on a daily basis. And her playing time is up to her in practice and also all for practice to put in the work in to improve upon the role they need her to be. And that's it. So I don't expect myself to make a lot of money as a tutor. I know I can make a lot more money in fitness, sports training, strength training, stuff like that, because it holds more value. It's more broad. I can attract more people. Basketball training, not a lot of people really need you that much because if the kid has a pretty good coach and the parent understands basketball, they're already doing some training already. The kid's already talented and, you know, they got a natural knack to go to the park and work out with their friends, like you just said earlier. Why do you need a trainer? So when it comes to this field, I try to tell a lot of coaches, um, you may want to pick up a secondary skill. Do not make this your full-time job. And I mean it. I mean, it's, it's you're not going to get paid that much for real. It's not a huge demand unless, like, you make it a huge demand. But it shouldn't be about, oh, I'm about to be one of the best skills trainer everybody. Nah, it should be about I'm going to take maybe two or three kids in my area that, that likes me as their coach. I'm going to – develop them for the next four to five years. And then after that, you know, based upon their growth and progress, at least to their friends and their friends. And after five to six years, oh, you're a well-known coach in the area. And now you're making money as a basketball coach in your area because of the community you have built. So if you're not there to build a community, develop these kids, see the long-term gain, hit the short-term goals, uh, be a role model in their life. If you're not there for those components, it makes no sense of you thinking about the money. And that's just my opinion about the whole situation. You may want to look at a secondary job. You may want to make this more part-time, but not nah, basketball coaching itself, especially training for that matter. You're not going to see a big pay. And if you are, kudos to you for figuring out how to do it. But I mean, it's going to take a lot of time, a lot of effort and and you can't be out here looking for the dollars, man. Um, are you are you changing their perspective on life? Are you are you helping them become better people? Um, are you helping them uh, further their passion towards the sport, which is more important because that's what helps them get over when shit gets extremely difficult. The passion outweighs the work that's demanded of them. Um, those those are all the things I try to put into these kids, man. From um, eight years old all the way up to twenty one years old, it's like. Uh, life isn't easy. Um, I have immigrant parents, Jamaican parents. They came to America with a damn suitcase. And now they was able to, like, you know, work pretty hard, get a house for themselves, and put their kids through school. So I've seen in my own eyes, like, you know, what persistence and consistence will lead to in life if you are passionate to make things happen. So I always try to further the passion of these kids. But to the main point, um, you're not going to make a lot of money. Just be in it for the right reasons, like you said. Yeah, beautifully said, man, like you have done throughout this whole conversation. So, um, and I didn't know that about you. So having some uh, perspective as well, you know, having this conversation about the sport we love and about development has been awesome. But learning sure, about man. each other has been dope too. So I appreciate you for, for giving me that opportunity. Oh, yeah, man. Same here to you, man. Um, One thing I like about uh, just talking to you as we end this uh, pod is that um you're very bright but you're not right to the point where it's hard to keep up with. You got what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. You are straight to the point, clairvoyant, and it's easy for, shit, a five-year-old to just pick on what you're saying. And that's a great skill to have because it makes you universal. And I think that's what makes great coaches great coaches, is that you're universal, that you can talk to a pro 
they get you. Can you talk to a five-year-old just getting to the rec league to understand you? And, you know, once you have that skill, I, I believe it's so much easier for you to develop because now it's like you speak the language of everybody. Yeah, I think that's probably, in all honesty, like, wow. I really think that's one of the best compliments that I've ever received, in mm. all honesty. Like, just, I just, I'm not trying to say this off the cuff. That's why I'm trying to think, like, in general. Like, I think <laughs> you're just giving me a compliment of something that I try to work hard, hard on every day. And I think more than wow. anything, it's just a, uh, it's a reflection, I think, of the people that I'm around. Um, mm-hmm. Because, like I said, I've, you know, I'm involved with fifth graders currently, and I do work out pros. Um, and it's the same thing. It really is. But for you to say something like that, because I do think that it is something that is very difficult and always trying to, you know, balance that. There are times where you have to get very, um, I guess, um, intricate and, you know, maybe go over the head of some people. Everything is not for everybody. But yeah. no, I think that's one of the best compliments I've ever received. I really, I really thoroughly appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, no problem, bro. You're welcome. So, yeah, man, um, Tibbs, I really do appreciate you, man. Um, this has uh, been a beautiful podcast, man. Um, so I'll definitely uh, fix up the parts that went on choppy and stuff like that, uh, mend this together. And um, I'll have this out uh, later this month because I'm going to drop like some other ones that I recorded as yeah. well. So yeah. uh, thank you so much, boss. Um, I told Harry uh, it got to be a, a Run the Tibby podcast episode, but he said uh, that can't happen unless y'all ready to drop the Run the Tibby podcast. <laughs> yeah, working on it. So we're uh... – I um go back to coaching. We'll go back to potting. So, um, you know, I just gotta make sure that you know if I got time because the pod take you know it's preparation. It's not for just sure. On so, if I got time to do that, I should be spending that time doing something else. So, the pod has been on pause because of me, and you know, I, we can't wait to get back. We talk about it weekly. So, yeah, you definitely got to come on our pod and figure that out. So. Oh yeah, man. Um, pandemic, y'all had a lot of gems, man. Um, I actually was like taking some notes out. Um, y'all three, um, were just dropping, um, just subtle notes when it came to just like what's the standard of training, what's the standard of knowing when to improve upon a skill. Um, but is is it is it the eye test? Is it a rep test? Like you guys were just dropping, you know, devil advocate talking points, but it had to be spoken because it's too much. Um what's the word like old head and I call it old head meaning that it's a standard set because we want to seem cool and all our old heads and all our OG says what we got to do but it has no validation it has no real standing foothold of saying this standard is going to work because it proves that it becomes uh that it's a progressive uh uh standard and we can build upon it Nah, it's not like that it's just it's, it's like a hood legend it's just something we say we have to do but it's not true so um, I think that's one thing I liked about you guys' podcast is that, like, yes, it was long, but it was so informative. And if right. you sat down and just listened and forgot about how long it took, just sat down and listened, it's like y'all are changing the conversation. It needs to be changed. And instead of, like you said before, people ask kissing the, the I guess you can call the long, uh, let me see, the elder statements, the elder state uh, statesmen of basketball and just questioning, you know, a lot of the beliefs that's been pushed down from them. And asking, is this what we are truly doing? And does it really make sense? Those questions aren't asked a lot because in basketball, especially in the training realm, it is a lot of ass kissing. 
oh, word, I, um, that's so-and-so, yeah, I'm about to go link up with him. Why you need to go link up with him? Like, what is he going to offer you besides maybe some credibility and right. validation? He might not even be the right coach for you to shadow under, but because he's a big name, that's what, nah, don't do that. Go right. put in the work and God's going to put the right people for you. But back to the main point, that's the best thing about y'all podcast. Like, y'all don't hold any punches. Y'all question everything about the state of basketball. Um, and that's what we need. We need more honest people so we can have a real conversation and not just so um, pig, piggyback uh, Twitter uh, debate about what's wrong with the youth. Like, shut that shit up. Nothing's wrong with the youth. The youth are led by adults. There's something wrong with the adults, and adults need to curtail their actions towards themselves. Simple as that. Big facts. Totally agree. Simple as that. So thank you again, boss. And uh, I'll stay in touch with you, man. And um, if you need a book list, let me know. I got an uh, extensive library. <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah, send me a couple, bro, because I, I got I got Atomic Thoughts on with James Quirk. So I got that. So send me a couple. I'm always interested. So I appreciate you. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll, I'll take a couple of pics right now. Send it to your IG, bro. I bet. Appreciate you. All right, man. Have a good one, bro. Uh, you too. All right, bet.